0: You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 8, in which one of DD's most recognizable foes enters the picture and paints a target on Old Hornhead. That's right, folks. It's the first appearance of Bullseye. Welcome to another exciting episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show without fear. I am Dave, also known as J. David Weider, also known as the host of this show, in which I read Daredevil comics and talk about the good, the bad, and everything in between. This week is an exciting one, folks. One of the linchpins of Daredevil's stable of characters enters the picture, and it sort of begins the setup for our look at the Frank Miller material in 2014. Now just to outline that coverage, since I got that on the table, um, so if you want to pull books, follow along... I'm going to be covering Daredevil 159 to 161, and then we're going to skip one issue, and then 162 to 191. I know what you're going to say, and you're right. Technically, issue 158 was Miller's debut as the penciler, and I know he doesn't take over as writer and artist until 168, but issues 159 to 161 and then 163 to 164, they're collected in a trade called Daredevil Mark for Death, which I loved. And I really wanted to talk about those issues. And, you know, as far as him being the writer, we also see Miller slowly take over the book, which, for a kind of a chronological study of a comic book, kind of a cool thing for discussion. Now, after 191, which ends the run proper, there'll be a brief five-episode break to celebrate the anniversary of Daredevil, that being the 50th. And then I'll be looking at the graphic novel Love and War. And then it's Born Again, which will take us to issue 233. Now, think about this, folks. Electra. The Punisher, Bullseye, Karen Page at her lowest, and Nuke. I mean, if that doesn't psych you out for 2014, well, there's Captain America the Winter Soldier, X-Men Days of Future Past, Guardians of the Galaxy, Amazing Spider-Man 2. But come on, this is this is looked at as pretty much the definitive Daredevil material. I mean, I, if nothing else, I'm very excited. Because by the time this show ends its first year of existence, we will have covered a ton of solid Daredevil material. And that's only the first year. There's still a lot of stuff to cover. But... Enough on that, because conjecturing about the future does not a good podcast make. Let's look at the here and now, because we are about to read the debut story of a major character for Daredevil, the villain known as Bullseye. For the fans of the comic, this is exciting. For those who know Daredevil from the movie, Colin Farrell will not be appearing tonight. Sorry. Instead, we will be seeing a vicious madman who has a very natural, very deadly ability, and one who will have one of the most bitter violent downright nasty villainous relationships in comics the closest thing i could compare it to is batman and the joker i mean even luthor and superman don't have such a personal and brutal adversarial paradigm and yet i have questions about this questions of validity of character comparison to past villains and more so this is an episode where i'm going to deconstruct the seed planted as far as the character poke around in the core put it all back together so that when we go forward with the inevitable future stories featuring a daredevil bullseye conflict we have a full frame of reference. So all of that is coming up this week, but first let's play a promo for another podcast, in this case, just one of the guys from the Two True Freaks Network, and after that, Daredevil number 131, the first appearance of Bullseye.
1: Wow, I'm Really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for her birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere, it's all just so perfect. Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that.
2: Good afternoon.
1: Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you?
2: My name is Dufo de Manzo. Where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse.
1: Uh, okay. What is it?
2: I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it.
1: Oh, well, that sounds great. What do I need to do?
2: You will know when the time is right. Until then, I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh,
1: oh, okay, cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks everyone for listening, and I'll catch you all next week.
2: Bravo. Bravo. Gah!
1: How the hell did you find me, and how did you get in my house? Do not
2: worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me.
1: Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me.
2: That is true. So let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, com, and I am gathering a podcast such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks network, and in return... Our debt will be settled.
1: Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt?
2: Do you accept my offer?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh, okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli?
2: Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the
1: tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys you know. every Friday at 2
0: Welcome back. That was the promo for Just One of the Guys, Sean Ingalls Guy Gardner Green Lantern Podcast, which can be found at the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Definitely check that out. I've been a guest on it several times. Sean's a great guy. However, wait to check that out till we're done with this show, because this week is a doozy, folks. Bullseye. He's one of Daredevil's most recognizable foes. He has action figures, a hot wheel car. He appeared in the movie. He's synonymous with the man without fear. I mean, ask any casual comic book fan who Daredevil's arch nemesis is. Bullseye's name will likely be the first name thrown out. If not the first, definitely the second behind Kingpin. However, unlike Kingpin, who began as a Spider-Man villain, Bullseye is wholly organic to Daredevil. And a better fit in some ways, because Kingpin isn't going to be leaping across rooftops anytime soon. As we said last week, Kingpin don't fly. He's a plotter. He's a schemer. And when hands need to get dirty, he just makes a phone call and writes the checks. Bullseye has the physical realm down, and the two share similar costumes in their base components, both wear bodysuits with masked hoods, which is kind of trivial, I know. But they serve different ideals. Daredevil believes in the system, or else Matt certainly wouldn't bother being a lawyer. Bullseye pretty much believes in chaos. Matt seeks justice, Bullseye is either seeking the almighty dollar or just the, the outright thrill of the kill. I'm not going to say that they're flip sides of the same coin, because I don't even ascribe that to the Joker and Batman or to Superman and Luthor. The villain has to come from not the direct opposite, but more opposite to the left a bit to work. Otherwise, they have no anima of their own. Um, and, uh, let me explain that. The Flash and Professor Zoom would be a good example. Barry, yes, I'm using Barry for this is a do-gooder, based on his own moral code, which dictates that since he has these gifts, he should do unto others. Professor Zoom, or reverse Flash, feels that since he has these gifts, he should be exalted by others. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Dave, isn't that the opposite? Yes, however, Zoom came into his mental state because of the Flash and his heroics. Because of all that, Doom has a vendetta against the Flash, To be an opposite, Zoom would come about his gifts in the same manner as Barrier, or a close equivalent thereof, and then set about his path based on his own accord. See what I'm saying? Opposite, but to the left. And if he was an opposite, Professor Zoom would move really, really slowly, and we have Turtle Man for that. But what does this have to do with Bullseye and Daredevil? Daredevil was granted his gifts by accident, where Bullseye, as we're going to see, has gifts stemming from natural talent from birth. Matt was inspired to do good by his father where Bullseye came to his ideal through different path. And to be true opposites, Bullseye would have to have some type of physical flaw that becomes a unique strength. Um, Look at a character like Echo, for example. That would be an opposite. Instead, Bullseye's at his physical peak. I say all of this in advance because the question that I ask myself when sitting down to talk Bullseye, the questions I have on the table is what makes him work? What has made him endure? And what is the nature of his adversarial relationship with Daredevil? So strike perfect opposite off the list, and we can dive into this comic with a bit more of a clean slate, because the idea of an opposite is the easy answer. And in podcasting and character studies, there are rarely easy answers, at least not when the material's good. So let's take a look at our comic this week, Daredevil issue 131, which has a cover by Rich Buckler and Frank Giacoya, showing Daredevil hunched over the body of a dead man. A dart in Dee Dee's hand. Bullseye stands in the window over Daredevil's shoulder with another dart ready to be thrown at Daredevil who thinks to himself that Bullseye has the drop on him. There's no way to save himself. Okay, so colon isn't on the book. Let me get that out of the way up front. This still looks good though. Buckler has a similar moodiness and a very colon-esque composition. The corpse on the floor looks like Alfred from Batman though. I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but just a thing. And I don't mean Ben Grimm. But let's not wait any longer. Let's open the comic and take a look at Daredevil, issue 131, which was the March 1976 issue. And the title of the story is Watch Out for Bullseye, He Never Misses. Written by Marv Wolfman. Penciled by Bob Brown. Inked by Klaus Janssen. Lettered by Joseph Rosen. And colored by Michelle Wolfman. And if you're wanting to read this, uh, instead of getting the original issue, you can pick up the Daredevil vs. Bullseye trade paperback. This issue is on Marvel Digital Unlimited and in the brand new, just-released Essential Daredevil, Volume 6. The issue opens with a fairly random sequence in which Daredevil swings into action against a group called the Rocketeers. These ROM villains are robbing a jewelry store when Daredevil begins a fairly decisive beating on them, taking out the bulk of them with ease. But, one tries to get away in his rocket car, and that's right, I said rocket car, when Daredevil whips out his belly club and makes a solid swing through the passenger side window, and kicks the escaping enemy right out of the driver's side, leaving the car driverless to crash harmlessly into a street lamp. After the Rocketeers are rounded up, Daredevil talks to the newly elected district attorney and somewhat awkwardly foggy successor, who says that Daredevil is an asset to the city. Blushing, DeeDee Dee thanks the DA for his kind words, And before we move to the next segment of the book, let's look at this bombastic opening. First things first, the Rocketeers have nothing to do with Dave Stevens' excellent graphic novel or the movie adaptation thereof. In fact, this comic predates that by several years. They were, however, ROM villains who wore suits that allowed them to fly and a bit of armor, some strength. However, let's call them what they are for this issue, mincemeat. I mean, Daredevil just mops up the floor with them and he barely works up a sweat doing it. In fact, the first page is simply a splash page of Daredevil swinging on the scene. The second page is the beatdown of the bulk of the group with only one straggler. And then Daredevil swings through the car knocks the straggler out the other side. It's an action sequence worthy of Michael Bay. You know, the good parts of Michael Bay that please the eye, not the brain. Well, I guess that's just known as Michael Bay. Okay. Regardless, with nothing eloquent to say on that action beat, I will just leave it at that. That was a kick-ass scene. Sure, it had nothing to do with the overall issue, but it opens the book with a bang and that's commendable. Bob Brown actually holds his own in the issue, aided by Klaus Janssen, who will be an important creator for us. The art is dynamic, it flows, and yet it's not Gene Colan. It does the trick, but it lacks a certain charm, a certain refinement that only Gene Colan brought. Also, we see some changes have occurred. Clearly, Foggy is no longer the district attorney. So, where are Matt and Foggy earning their wages at? Let's take a look at that in the next leg of the issue. Matt Murdock makes an appearance at his new job with the storefront law firm, a job that he shares with Foggy since, well, all of that happened. A prospective new client, Miss Gilhart, comes into the offices to share her story of living in squalor with no heat or hot water and cockroaches. Matt decides to champion the lady's case and leaves to investigate, saying goodbye to the secretary... Heather Glenn. Elsewhere, another villain, one hooked up to some strange machine, plots more plots that aren't important to our story as we move to another scene entirely. In a skyscraper office building, a bigwig businessman is sitting in his office when a paper airplane comes through his window. It's a closed window, I should note. The man named Honeycutt unfolds the airplane to find a note demanding $100,000 or he will die. And it's signed Bullseye with a target added for emphasis. Theatricality is important. Immediately, Bullseye himself comes into the office dressed in a black bodysuit and hooded mask with the stylized target on his forehead. Bullseye demands the money that he just sent the letter about, and when Honeycutt says that he doesn't have the cash, Bullseye throws a pin into Honeycutt's throat, killing him. And that is the very first scene with our fair sociopath, and a good place to talk about this a bit. We have our two intrepid lawyers working at a storefront office, which I like, because this really lets them crusade for justice and brings in kind of a special flavor of client, the innocent, the hardworking people. Now, notice I, I emphasized Heather Glenn, because she's somewhat important, or at least she will be. Matt and Heather are going to develop a relationship, a sort of on-again, off-again, will-they-or-won't-they thing. Notice anybody missing. Karen. As I've pointed out, she has left to hang out with the Ghost and be in his books, so she went from a man who dresses like the devil to a man who literally gets his powers from the devil. Don't ever say that Karen Page doesn't fall upwards. No, really, don't say it, because that's not true. I mean, she's out of our hair for a bit, and the next time we see her, well, (laughs) that's gonna be awkward. But Heather is here, and she is... Well, okay, you know what? I think I hate her more than Karen. Because at least I grew to understand Karen. And at times, I even saw her point of view. Heather is a drunken party girl who's gonna go on to hook up with drunk Tony Stark, and that's her claim to fame. She's a notch in Iron Man's belt. But... From that, let's go to the big show. Bullseye shows up. What an awesome debut. The paper airplane floating on the breeze right into the window. Now, of course, most windows in any high-rise buildings are reinforced for wind and weather, earthquakes, all of that. The physics are impossible. But it looks cool, right? And then the man himself strides right into the office and kills Honeycutt with a pen to the throat. A pen to the throat, right out of the gate. Bullseye makes an impression, with a, and it's a solid impression. He does so with style, which brings up the questions, what makes him work? Well, that's easy to spot. Where characters that were good matches for Daredevil, at least in terms of a good fight, appeared half the time, they were goony looking With goony plots. To demonstrate, allow me to take uh, any co-opted Spider-Man villains off the table. Let's look at the Matador. Yes, his acrobatic skills made him a good and formidable foe for Daredevil and gave us a good fight, but he was dressed as a f***ing Matador. 10 points from House Matador. Likewise, the Jester. He gave DD a run for his money in a physical fight, and in terms of strategery, he was awesome. Yet, he was a Jester. And that just doesn't work. And I know, I know, it could be comparable to the Joker. But the Joker works because he is this madcap crazy lunatic who has no limits. Villains like Stiltman were an odd match for Daredevil, and plotters were good for suspense, but not great for full confrontation, just ask the masked marauder. And this was Daredevil's status quo for a long time. He himself was a good premise, with very few good enemies, which is why this book kind of limped along for so long. It had a great lead character. That's what kept it alive, but the villains kept it from being great. And then we get Bullseye. We get a solid villain who marks his territory like a dog pissing on a bush in all of two pages. He has the physical prowess of the Jester and the Matador, but a solid costume, which needs just a bit of refinement, admittedly. But essentially, it looks great right out of the box. And the refinement that I mean is that his mask doesn't reveal his eyes until Gil Kane draws him in a later appearance. And the target on his forehead just needs to be shrunk down just a a little bit. Both of these happen, and for a good reason. The target is... Well, it's just not as aesthetically pleasing at this size because it obstructs his expressions. But the eyes are a bit of a needed contrast because Daredevil hides his eyes behind red lenses essentially to conceal his blindness. He doesn't use his eyes. However, Bullseye's gimmick, his natural talent, stems from his vision and being able to see the target. In that respect, we're looking at the opposite and to the left dynamic. However, for this opening salvo, the costume gets a pass as the black on white immediately brings to mind things like poison labels. Dirt, dinginess, and the target pretty much tells us what we need to know. And then Bullseye delivers on the promise. When it comes time to kill, Bullseye does not around. He gets right on that. So, that's why he works. He's pretty simple, straightforward. Why does he endure? Because he is straightforward. His whole shtick is that he throws things and people die. There isn't always a rhyme or reason for that. At no time do we feel sympathy or want to understand him. We don't need to because he is pure, malevolent evil. Unlike the Joker who kills in elaborate ways, typically when it's funny, Bullseye will kill you because, well, you're there. You're a target. Sure, he's out for some cash here, but he gave Honeycutt the demand and 20 seconds later walked in, almost as if he knew Honeycutt wouldn't have the money because that's exactly what he wanted to happen. We don't always need complex villains with intricate backstories or flawed but empathetic villains. For every Ra's Ghoul Ghul and Lex Luthor, there's a story where their sole purpose is just to be evil, no matter how complex a villain exists to be an adversary for the hero. That, in all forms, is what a villain does they confront the heroes. However, anything beyond that is just building on the foundation of the villainy, which takes many forms. For Bullseye, that form is just a straight-up killer, with no real restraint, no desire for restraint. But where does he come from? What drives him? Let's see if we can answer that question. Let's pull the issue back out and continue. Matt is checking out Miss Gilhart's rundown building and learns that it is owned by Glenn Industries. Glenn. Catch that? Because Matt didn't. But, in the midst of examining the squalor, Matt overhears news of Honeycutt's murder over a radio and suits up to check it out. At the murder scene, Daredevil talks to police lieutenant Bert Rose, who isn't keen on Daredevil's interference with the investigation. In Bert's opinion, Bullseye is a straight-up nut, which is why he dragged Honeycutt's body across the office and attached him to the wall and painted a target on the body and the wall together. But a reporter for the Daily Bugle named Jake Conover asks Daredevil to meet him at his office because he has some info on Bullseye. So later at the Bugle, Conover explains that his source told him that Bullseye was a soldier in Vietnam, who got a little too into the combat. When facing down a Viet Cong soldier, the man who would become Bullseye ran out of ammo in his gun and just threw it at his enemy with deadly precision. After that, he went on to study many other weapons and develop his natural gift of marksmanship until anything in his hand would become a deadly weapon. Daredevil correctly deduces that Conifer's source was Bullseye himself because, you see, Bullseye is trying to make the extortion thing run. So he is doing his own publicity by speaking to the press and also making sure Honeycutt died as an example. So... Daredevil rubs Rose the wrong way, let's look at that. I'm sure we're all crying into our pillows at night thinking about it. More importantly, we have Conover, who is a good vessel for a lot of exposition on Bullseye straight from the horse's mouth. Note, we never get the real name of Bullseye, just a backstory, and that backstory stays consistent with some variations on it. The variations come in the form of his childhood, which typically include an abusive father. However, Conover mentions that Bullseye was a potential baseball pitcher. That is later mentioned in subsequent stories. Supposedly, Bullseye was a major league pitcher for a short while. And in the midst of a shutout game where he's just knocking it out of the park, no pun intended, uh, (laughs) allowing zero runs, Bullseye got bored. So the coach wouldn't pull him, so Bullseye beamed a guy in the head and killed him. He killed him because he was bored with the baseball game. Once again, pure evil. And he even works as his own public relations department. He sought out Conover to tell his story. He hung Honeycutt's body on a wall to add it to his reputation so that the next victims would pay out more readily. He's putting the message out there that he is relentless and will do anything for a payday, though, and I don't doubt that he loves the money, I think the extortion scheme is a nice path to kill more people. Bullseye's just a pure killer. He gets off on it. Serial killers have methods that they stick to. Terrorists have an ideal to push. Bullseye shows up. And he wants to be known. That's why he wears a costume. That's why he advertises. He wants to be feared. Niccolo Machiavelli was a writer. And his most famous work is The Prince, which is a treatise on politics. It's still used as a reference guide in politics today. One of Machiavelli's earliest thoughts in the book is this. Is it better to be feared or respected? And Machiavelli posits that it can be both. But that doesn't always pan out, does it? Because Bullseye is looking for both, but Fear is winning with his methods, and I don't think he's losing sleep over that. If he can't get paid, he'll get to kill somebody. Win-win. Again, it's the lack of complexity that makes Bullseye work. The reader knows what's at stake when Bullseye hits the scene, and we know it's going to end in bloodshed. That's all we need to know. We don't even need to know his real name. But we get to the final question of our agenda here. What is the nature of the adversarial relationship between Daredevil and Bullseye? What is the core of it? Let's take a look at the last leg of the book to answer that one. After learning a bit more about Bullseye, Daredevil heads out of the office and runs right into a grenade thrown in the air. Caught unaware, Daredevil barely avoids being fish food and manages to get his shell-shocked self back to the ground. Unfortunately, he lands in an alley where Bullseye is waiting. And Bullseye throws a lot of trash at Daredevil, turning garbage into missiles. After a brief scene where Foggy mentions Glen Industries and Heather Glynn points out that her father owns the company and then goes on a big rant about not knowing what to believe anymore. Uh, if it wasn't important for later episodes, I wouldn't mention it. But back to Daredevil and Bullseye. Bullseye runs away, causing Daredevil to fall into the villain's plan and chase him into an unknown location. Daredevil readies himself for a fight, noting many heartbeats, which means that they're in a public place. But before the fight really gets going, Bullseye throws a rope around Daredevil and yells out for a spotlight. And when the light comes up, we see that the combatants are in the center ring of a circus. And the crowd in attendance is about to witness the circus of death. And that cliffhanger closes out the issue. So this is a quick fight at the end of the issue, and Bullseye starts it. He seeks out Daredevil and attacks. And he does so in a method he knows won't kill Daredevil. He's looking to bring Daredevil into a position where Bullseye has the upper hand, but even with the confrontation in the alley, Bullseye is just warming up. He's baiting the hook, and Daredevil swallows it hook, line, and sinker, and ends up tied up, about to potentially get killed in public. There's, there's never a point in this fight where Daredevil gains his footing, because Bullseye is coming at him from all angles, and we don't see the main brunt of the fight, but the opening salvo in which Daredevil, I'm sorry to say, gets outmatched. That brings us to the third question. What is the adversarial relationship's nature? Why does this work? Because Bullseye isn't just a good match. He's an out-and-out threat to Daredevil. Daredevil doesn't so much fight him as struggle to survive an encounter. Matt is a complex hero. And that has been the case from issue one. His gifts are complex in how they work and how he received them. His emotions are all over the place. His love life is a wreck. His work life is up and down. And as a superhero, his method is strategic and thought out. All of this makes for a good, compelling hero. Especially so in uh, an ongoing narrative. And then we have a straightforward evil without a cause. Kill you for looking at him bullseye. Suddenly, the fight is in no way complex. It's a fight or flight, the most basic instinct in humanity. And bullseye was the first villain to make that real for the character and the reader. Even the gladiator has a goal or a strange logic behind what he does. Bullseye is chaos and carnage, and Daredevil facing him is visceral, and readers get that. It's pure adrenaline, because when Bullseye shows up, you know, is about to go down. So he works because he is straightforward in design and concept, as well as a credible threat. He endures for many of the same reasons. At the core of this adversarial relationship is that he is a true fight for Daredevil, and that makes for good reading, but... That's the core. Events are going to conspire to make this more tangible, especially in the fates of some of the characters we will be meeting. The nature of the beast doesn't change, but it does become a more personal creature. But this issue tells us all that we will ever need to know, and I read it, you know, knowing the characters, knowing their futures, and at the end I still said, Damn! It knocked my socks off, and it walked a great line between the pure action and some ongoing narratives with the storefront law firms. True, Bob Brown is at Gene Colon but he does deliver some great art, and Marv Wolfman knows a thing or two about making Daredevil a slightly darker character. Of course, Wolfman would know darker, as he was writing Tomb of Dracula at the same time with Gene Colan. Couldn't we have gotten a twofer? Ah. Anyway, just a a knockout issue and pitch-perfect introduction to Bullseye. Just to set your mind at ease as far as this cliffhanger. Uh, In issue 132, this fight goes... uh, It goes fairly quickly, but it does involve bullseye shooting a man out of a cannon at daredevil that's right you know you're a hardcore villain and when instead of shooting bullets you shoot people and of course uh, daredevil is able to capture him this time but bullseye will return again and again and again so that wraps up daredevil number 131 now comes my favorite part of the show emails so let's see what's in the email box this week
3: i don't know people actually read emails
0: First up in the email box this week is an email from Dave Hooray with the subject line, Loving the new show. Dave writes, Hi, Dave. Hey, that's my name, too. I'm sitting here listening to the third episode at work and just wanted to write and tell you how much I'm enjoying the new show. I've listened to you on many of the other shows you've had a part in, Pad Smash, Green Lantern's Light, New 52 Soups, etc., and I was excited when you mentioned you were going to do a Daredevil podcast. Having just gotten on the Daredevil train with Wade's Run and currently going back and reading older material, your discussions on the early issues particularly in regards to the conceptualization and development of the character and his look has been really enjoyable and informative for this Daredevil noob. Looking forward to further episodes. Oh, and the opening theme song is priceless. It's got like an Iron Butterfly in a vibe with Ron Burgundy-esque rocking flute line. Nice. Dave. Uh, Thanks for the kind words, David. I do try to make sure that anyone can enjoy the show, from aficionados to people getting into the current stuff to people with a passing curiosity. And uh, just to let you know, the theme song is Man Without Fear by Icarus. I can't believe I've never mentioned this before. I uh, chose it because... Well, I was looking at other music to use. Some of it went really dark. Some of it went somewhere in between. You don't want to go overly heroic. Uh, But I latched onto that song because of that Ron Burgundy riff, because the song is all about having fun with the comics, which is the mantra of the show. It's what I come back to. So when you hear the theme song, you should be thinking, oh, this guy's about to have fun. We're about to have fun talking about Daredevil comics. No matter how dark the comic is, we're enjoying this. That's the goal. Um, Icarus, just to let you know, is a prog rock band, and I found out about them by way of Michael Bailey's views from the long box and his happy birthday Spider-Man series. But I immediately thought they were great. They did a whole, the, the Marvel world of Icarus is a whole album of just Marvel related songs. It's all really, really weird and goofy, very enjoyable album, but I'm glad that you like the theme music. Dave also put in another email, just adding, uh, this is a subject line that says one more thing and a nomination for the funniest line from a podcast goes to gladiator looks like a member of right said Fred that got dropped into Thunderdome. Nice. What can I say? I just call them like I see them. And that was what I saw. I couldn't get I'm too sexy for my shirt out of my head for like a week. Thanks, gladiator. Next up is an email from Russell Bragg. The subject line reads episode three. Thou shall come a gladiator. Uh, Russell writes. Hi, guys. Wait, you're alone on this podcast. Great episode as always. Don't really have much to say about the comic. With your synopsis, I'm pretty clear on the issue. No problems understanding it, even without the comic in front of me. It's not my, in my collection, anyway. I did enjoy your Dare Foggy reference. I could really tell how excited you were that Daredevil was finally in the red costume. How many issues of Daredevil did he actually wear the yellow costume? Uh, answer that real quick, Russell. It was six. First six issues, and then the ASM number 16. So, in total, seven comics in all. Six issues of the regular series. Back to Russell's email. Why do you think they changed to the red one? Guess that's all for now. Deuces. They changed to the red one. I, I basically just, it was just aesthetic. You know, they wanted uh, something different. And they, Stan tells the story that they came in and said, Hey, what color would you, we want to change the color. What color would you like? And Stan's just like, I choose red. Honestly, I think Wally Wood was like, Well, we have a, der- a guy in a devil costume. Shouldn't that be red? And they just kind of ran with it. There's no decisive story on exactly why they changed it, but those are the two, you know, the one that Stan tells and then my theory. And yeah, my, my excitement level did change when we were in the red costume. it's more in familiar territory. The first two episodes were odd because it's not that we weren't reading Daredevil, but the yellow costume just throws me off. And that's probably because, you know, I was I introduced to Daredevil in the red costume. I was familiar with that. That was my Daredevil. And it, was, it wasn't until way later that I looked at the, <laughs> the yellow costume and said, what the hell is that? And, but I just looked at him like, Whoa. And no, Keanu Reeves isn't here. That was just my mind trying to wrap my wrap around the fact that this happened. Kind of like when I learned about the Grey Hulk from Hulk number one. You get these preconceived notions. You get your idea of a character locked in and suddenly you look back. It's like, no, that's not actually how it happened. Kind of like Superman in the phone booth would probably be the best. The fact that really he barely did that at all. But thank you for your email, uh, Russell. Next up is an email from Jason Sandberg. Subject, podcast feedback. Jason writes... Dave, congrats on the first three swashbuckling episodes. Your decisive pacing and editing honors the swinging and swooping man without fear. I can contrast the wild, rollicking feel of Pad Smash with the tight format of the Daredevil shows. You are a man on a mission. The theme song creates the perfect mood. Why have I never heard this song before? I applaud your decision to jump non-linearly, that's hard to say, from issue to issue, landing and pausing where you fancy, like a certain Avenger leaping from rooftop to rooftop. Colin, Miller, Wood, Wade, there's so much to look forward to. Keep up the good work, Jason Sandberg. Yeah, and the first, the first decision I made, Jason, was I want to admit a lot of the in-between issues and jump around and look at really important pieces of the Daredevil mythology before jumping into a long run with Miller. And that, mainly because that meant missing some of the more frustrating Daredevil comics like Daredevil going to the West. I'm sorry, but horses and cowboys don't feel like Daredevil to me. Also skipping things like Man Bull trying to kill a couple of hippies. Yeah, that happened. Uh, but it also meant that I could jump into things like the Frank Miller stuff, which is pretty much required to an extent. I mean, that was something where I when I started the show, I'm like, well, I'm not going to avoid that. Let's let's put it as early into the show as possible. And then kind of without the 800 pound gorilla in the room, we can move wherever we want. But then we can look back at the older stuff again with a new perspective and balance out the dark and gritty with the fun. The reason you probably didn't hear from the theme song was that it was kind of underground. As I mentioned, Michael Bailey was the first one to introduce me to it it's, it's, it's fairly obscure. So I felt, I feel like a hipster saying that. I'm um, so sorry. I, in no way do I ever want to come off like a hipster. It, 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 I mean, it would, it would be something that I wouldn't find. So it's not like I was into them before everyone else. Moving on from that awkwardness. Our next email is from Ian McGregor subject to your podcast. He writes, hello, Dave. I'm loving your new daredevil podcast. Your love of daredevil really comes through and it's a joy to hear. I look forward to each new episode every Sunday morning. Oh, Ian's making me blush. You mentioned that your definitive Daredevil artist was Gene Cullen, and I was looking through his art in Daredevil number 26 on Marvel's Digital Comics Unlimited, and his art was gorgeous. I feel that he is overshadowed by contemporaries like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, and I wish he got more appreciation. Since you seem to be a fan of Daredevil in the Silver Age, what do you think of Frank Miller's work on Daredevil? For me, Miller's first run was my first experience with Daredevil, and his first run combined with Bored Again, I do not include Man Without Fear because I cannot stand that story. Well, Awkward is my definitive version of the character. Even though I do like the dark and grim Daredevil, I also like the brighter version of Daredevil. I like the Lee run, Kessel run, Kiesel. What am I doing? I'm getting Star Wars references mixed in there. Sorry. Kiesel run and ongoing Wade run. I'm loving this podcast and I hope it keeps going for a long time. Best, Ian. Well, thanks to the power of Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey, I am looking at Miller's run, which I do feel is essential and... As I mentioned, it would be downright expected, which is why it's happening so early in the show's run. I mean, give the people what they want. I do like Miller's run a lot. Um, with some caveats that we're going to be running into, I don't mind the Dark Daredevil. I don't have any issues with that. It's just when it's drawn out for no particular reason that I have an issue. Miller did not do that. And place very, very good money. It's a sure bet that the Carl Kiesel run is going to be a part of the show. And I, I believe I have that penciled in for 2015. So to answer that last part of your your email, yeah, this is going to be going for a while. It's just, it's another run that I feel is mandatory. And, and you know, talking about this, it's the versatility of Daredevil that I like the most. That we can do some of the dark stuff, some of the bright stuff, and just mix it up. And it's all organic to the character. That's an element of Daredevil that really is underappreciated. And Colin, yeah, he is overshadowed. Because when we talk about Marvel artists, Kirby's the first one that comes to mind. However, Kirby and Ditko, I could even throw in this, they were at the very forefront of the marvel artists they were the ones that defined it now you have uh, artists like colon like ramita who took the ball expanded a little and refined it but that's why their names get put on the top of the list people like kirby and ditko is they were the they were the progenitors essentially so yeah i wish uh, colon would get more love and i plan once we kind of wrap up our look here once we're done with Miller, I plan on coming back to look a little bit more colon. I may just have a Gene Colon Appreciation Month. Actually, pencil that one in. And next email is from Chris. Just Chris. I know Chris. I know where he lives. Chris was the best man at my wedding. But it's just Chris. His subject is Dark Hawk meets Daredevil. And he asks, are you planning on covering one of Daredevil's greatest moments with his appearance in Dark Hawk number six? Are you planning on focusing only on his monthly book? Well, Chris, consider Dark Hawk number six on the agenda at some point. Just not sure when. Again, kind of like the Gene Colon Appreciation Month, I may do a month of just Daredevil appearances in other comics. There's a lot I can do once the, we get through this big chunk of Miller Run, because once I'm done with that, I mean, that's a full year's worth of comics. After we're done with that, I do plan on jumping around a lot, just to kind of divvy things up and, and switch it up a little. So I will throw that on the agenda. It's a special request. I feel like Casey Kasem. Here's Chris from the Midwest. And he's requesting Darkhawk number six. Well, Chris, here's your long-distance dedication. It was a really terrible case to case and I apologize to everybody that just heard that. Um, and then we have another email from Mr. Russell Bragg. Subject, episode four. You never forget your first. Yeah, I'm going to admit, I'm a little bit off on the email. Last week, there was a segment of email that was recorded. And then the recording went bad at a certain point. So I actually just cut it back. So I said, you know, we have a lot of emails. And then there was only a few that's This is why. I'm catching up now, so I apologize for that. Just didn't come through in the editing. Anyway, Russell writes, Hey Dave, another great show. This one intrigued me because I had no idea Matt pretended to be his own twin brother. I didn't think about it and tell myself how could I know that since I don't know much about the character. Fair. I probably shouldn't argue with myself. While listening, I was taken back to a Brady Bunch episode where Peter meets a guy who is his, who is his exact double. They switch places and comedy ensues. I guess this is a little or a lot different since Matt is only one guy, but... That's where my mind went. I'm really enjoying the podcast and love that I'm learning more about Daredevil. Hope to learn more in episode five. Peace. Which is funny because this is episode eight. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. By the way, I am kind of crunching some of that time down. A three week lead was a bit too much. I felt a little out of touch because I was six episodes ahead writing the show. Three episodes ahead recording it. It just I tightened just a little bit. So I'm about two weeks ahead now, all in all. Uh, but Russell, Mike Murdoch is one of those inside jokes among Daredevil fans. It happened, it was charming, but nobody talks about it at length because it was also, I mean, admittedly, kind of goofy. And I just realized you watched a lot of Brady Bunch as a, as a kid because you made a comparison to the Brady Bunch on a Pad Smash episode. So I challenge you, Russell, to compare and contrast comic book tales to Brady Bunch episodes as often as possible. And you know, arguing with yourself can be productive. Just don't rule it out, but don't go Gollum either. Uh, Next up is an email from W. Blaine Dowler. Subject line is just thanks. He writes, hi Dave, thanks for the kind words and the plug for my X-Files podcast in the episode released today. I have been listening. Loving that show. My plan is to have listener feedback and off-week supplementals for that one. Also, the comic book podcast pilot season I mentioned is up and running. Today is day 8 of 14, featuring the second episode of the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. read-along podcast, if you're interested in catching it. Actually, kind of peaked. I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Blaine's email continues, You may also enjoy the Thursday selection, Daredevil's Advocate, where a guest and I argue. I maintain that Daredevil is the greatest comic book character ever, and my guest argues for his or her top choice. Last week was fellow podcaster Adam Graham arguing on behalf of Captain America, and this week will be a friend of mine named Anthony Stouffer making his podcast debut to argue on behalf of Iron Fist. Signed, Blaine. Iron Fist versus Daredevil, really? I mean, I know Daredevil's a second stringer. I've accepted that. But until Ed Brubaker got his hands on Iron Fist, the guy was just a master of kung fu ripoff in green pajamas. Never let it be said, though, that Danny Rand couldn't turn a buck. I mean, he and Luke Cage made a nice career out of superheroing, and sadly, pilot season will be over when this airs. However, I hope my vote for The New Warriors didn't end in vain, because that book was actually oddly part of the evolution of the show. Because <laughs> I was completely jokingly talking about doing a New Warriors podcast to kind of contrast it against 90s comics, just for fun. And then the notion of doing this show actually became a reality. Since I'd been thinking about it, it in the back of my head, that was kind of the the adapter from it going from a, an idea to actually being this show. So here's hoping for the new Warriors podcast. And remember, Blaine, expect an email from me in the future regarding some guest hosting and maybe something to do with the 50th anniversary. I'm going to keep that cryptic. But that brings us to the end of another episode of Dave's Daredevil podcast. Next week the final episode of the year. And I do something I just haven't quite done yet. I let a random number generator pull an issue of Daredevil for me, and it pulled Daredevil number 139, a really kind of kinetic one-off issue about a rough night for our man without fear. That is all next week. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
3: They call a man without fear Never far away is near
0: Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes, where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats, and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.